0: If you have your Bibles, turn them to the Old Testament, the book of Samuel. We're going to be in 2 Samuel. We're, we're finishing up a five-week story, a sermon series on the life of David. It takes us to Jesus in the manger because David is the pivotal character in the lineage of Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. If he's not from the lineage of David, he can't be the Messiah. That's the prophecy. And so we're going through David, from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, and it is absolutely messy. It's one of the messiest stories in scripture. And today is the climactic reality of that. We've been looking at different life stages: David and his teens, David in the wilderness, David in his power years. And now, maybe a few of you can relate. It's David the old man. Anyone admit they are the old man in the story of their own life at this point? He's gonna start in his mid 50s. Anyone there? Right, old, right? I got 10 years left before I'm 52, like David when he's with Bathsheba, and so we see him in a different reality, and then you're gonna see things just absolutely nosedive for him. But the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart, and so the implication for us is this, that we can fall short of the standard that God sets in place, but because of Jesus, we can be made right with God, and David in the Old Testament points us to the Savior in that way, and so we see a life restored even though he nosedives because of sin. And so there's this reality of David that's a reality in our own life, that life rarely goes as planned, that we at a young age have these aspirations, he's slaying giants, he has great faith, he goes into the wilderness, he gets chased, he becomes king, and then the power goes to his head, 52 years old, it looks like it's happily ever after, not so much, and that's our story as well. We may not live happily ever after. In fact, if you live long enough, you know that that's a reality. Sometimes things don't go the way that you think things are going to go. Maybe you don't live happily ever after. Maybe your aspirations don't come true. Maybe you never get a chance to walk your daughter down the aisle. Maybe you never got to purchase the high chair for the kid that you never had. Maybe the prodigal son didn't come home. Maybe you didn't get into that school. Maybe money wasn't tight. Money stayed tight. Maybe you thought till death do us part was something for your life and that person left you. And so what do you do when everywhere around you dreams are coming true and your, your story does not look like that? What do you do? Well, what does David do? He follows God. He keeps the faith regardless of these shortcomings that are a result of, let's just bring this to light, that are a result, direct consequence, and we're gonna, we're gonna camp here today, a direct consequence of his own sin. Now, Sometimes things don't happen the way we want them to happen because we've been sinned against, but so often the things that we think are gonna happen in our life don't happen because when we get to this crossroad of life, we choose our own death and destruction and don't follow the ways of the Lord, and that's David's story to some extent. But through all of it he keeps the faith. And so now 52 years old, let me give you a little historical context. When you think of David and Bathsheba, how many of you, because you know he's good looking, he plays the harp, he writes poetry, he writes songs, he's just, the, you know, he's a man, right? He's a man that, that women would like. How many of you think of that story and you go, this is morally wrong, but it's this good looking king and this young woman Bathsheba. That's not probably what it looked like. He's 52 years old, which for me, I'm just starting in my 40s, right? Just, it's, just, it's like fine wine, right? But for David, it's supposed to be funny, for David, 52 years old, historically, He's no longer the cool kid. In ancient times, you were not old. You were really old at 52. In fact, there was no dentist that you went to. You probably didn't have a lot of your teeth. He's not young and handsome with beautiful eyes. He probably has bad hygiene and missing teeth. And So at this point, as the story picks up, because it's gonna go from bad to worse, just follow with me, it's a long story today, and the shortcomings of David. At this point in the story, he's sitting on a balcony, he's looking off into the kingdom, and wouldn't you know it, there's this woman bathing, and she is taken. She, her name is what? Her name is Bathsheba, if you went to Sunday school. And she's married to a guy named Uriah. Uriah is a leader in David's military. David, because he's a king and because kings have a lot of power, obviously the power goes to his head. He doesn't care who Bathsheba's married to. He doesn't care what Uriah's loyalty is to the kingdom. You can't tell David no. David calls up Bathsheba. They spend the night together or multiple nights together. She sends him the message. 3,000 years later, not much has changed. She said, David, I have to let you know something. I am pregnant. David freaks out. Nothing's changed. 3,000 years later, he calls the husband He thinks in his mind that he can manipulate and contort things the way they need to be so he always gets what he wants. He's the smartest guy in the room. There are some narcissistic qualities to his personality makeup. He calls the husband off the battlefield and he says, give me a report of what's going on. It's all manipulated. Uriah tells him. He says, oh, thank you so much for that report. Now go home, spend the night with your wife. He calls back in Uriah. He says, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you spend the night with your wife? And Uriah has character. And Uriah looks at the king and he says to the king, he says, how can I go spend the night with my beautiful bride while my men are in the battle of their lives? And so David takes it to plan B. He gets Uriah incredibly drunk. Uriah still does not sleep with his wife. He still sleeps outside. And so now he gets the most evil and twisted plot of his kingship career. He then decides what he's going to do is have Uriah go to the front of the battlefield with his bodyguard, and then at a given time, he's gonna set him up, he's gonna withdraw everyone else, and so basically what he's doing is he's taking Uriah's innocent, passionate life, and he's signing his death warrant. David is in more than just a moment of bad judgment. He's in complete and utter rebellion. So the walls talk, people start to find out what's going on, mostly a prophet by the name of Nathan. Nathan approaches David a period of time later, David thinks he's gotten away with murder. But even when no one sees you, God always sees your heart and he sees your actions. And Nathan starts unfolding this story to King David. He says, there's this guy, I'm going to paraphrase this big time. He says, there's this guy who has everything. And then there's another guy who has next to nothing. He just has this one thing. And the guy that has everything goes to the guy that has basically nothing, and takes the one thing that he has. He says, David, what should be done to this guy? David's saying, take everything, take his life. He's furious, he's irate, he's passionate. He says, how could that scum, I'm paraphrasing, ever get away with this? And then Nathan looks at David in the eye, and I love this story, so look at me closely when I tell you, and he says this to David. He looks at him, he says, you're the man. You're the sinner. You're the one who had everything, and you had a guy killed and you slept with his wife, and you got her pregnant, and you call yourself a man of God and a king. This is what makes David great, and it's humility he breaks. And when David breaks, David breaks. He's a man after God's own heart, regardless of all the sin in his life. He feels horrible, and so God forgives him. We're going to read through this, this idea. God forgives him, but here's the big big point to be made and you need to put this in your mind because we're going to drive this home today he's forgiven by God but there's still consequences for his sin so 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 the reality for us is we can be absolutely forgiven by God but oftentimes there's consequences for our sin generationally there can be consequences for things that have happened before us that have affected us and so this is what happens here's the consequence sometime later if I can get to it. Oops. Are you ready? I feel like you need to say we're ready. All right. Ready? All right. Three of you. All right. Here we go. Thus says the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives, plural. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. This is some crazy stuff. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secret. But I will do these things before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He gets it right. His theology is on point. I have sinned against the Lord. More than Uriah, it's against God. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, right? He's forgiven you. And you're not gonna die, that's gonna be a manifestation of your forgiveness, you're not gonna die, but here are the consequences. You might not feel them in the here and now, but over the course of your life you're gonna feel them and you're gonna feel them greatly. That's David's story, things that are done in secret are being made known and manifesting in public. 10 years later, David has these sons and when you have sons and you're a king, your sons are gonna become kings. His oldest son, next in line, isn't just kinda messed up, he's watched dad, he knows the story, he knows what it looks like to manipulate, he knows what it looks like to take advantage of people and use them as property in his own life, and he takes it to a whole nother level, his name is Amon, David's oldest son, next king of Israel, and he had this problem that he was consumed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Can't get her out of his mind. She doesn't think so much of him. He's obsessed with her. And because he is a manipulative sociopath, he pretends to be very ill, and he sends a word to his dad, the king. He says, is it okay for my sister to be sent to me for a special meal? Dad, I'm really sick. Could you have her take care of me? She gets to the house, he sends everyone out and he tries to take her into bed with him and he begs and admits he's not sick and this is the response. She answers him in 2 Samuel 13 verse 12. She answers him, no my brother. This is one of the saddest scriptures in the entire Old Testament. Just think of this girl who has no rights in this culture. She says to him, no my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Where where am I going to go after you do this to me? I can't even be married off anymore. He's so selfish, he doesn't care. And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her, and he laid with her. And so this is just saying, basically, he just rapes her. He just outright rapes his sister. And here's what's really tragic. Then Amon hated her with very great hatred. He sleeps with her. He uses her. He hates her with great hatred. So much so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Aben said to her, get up. Look at me, get up and get out of here. I I raped you, now you're just a piece of trash, get out. Disgusting, disgusting. And here's where it gets even sadder, this is the legacy. One of the most intense passages in the Old Testament, her life is ruined forever in a sense. Tamar just came to the realization that in this culture she would never marry, she would never have rights. He did so much more than cause her physical pain. He affected this woman's legacy. And so here's what's so tragic about the story. David, in essence, did the same thing. Bathsheba Bathsheba's sitting down there. He just says, I'm king. I can do what I want. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, kills her husband. His son sees all of this. So David loses his platform. He does, look at me, he does nothing. He does nothing. Why does he do nothing? Because he lost his moral authority as the father and as the king because the son knows what the king's all about. And so he gets furious, but there's nothing he can do. His son knows it, Absalom is next in line to be king. And he's Tamar's brother by the same parents. And Absalom, the other person in line to be king, is furious by what happened to his sister, but he hides it because he learns to manipulate as well. And so he just hushes everything up and he makes it sound like everything's okay. He takes Tamar into his house because he has to do, he he knows that she's destitute. He makes everyone think that he's forgotten what Amon has done, and he lets a time go by, a few years. He throws a huge feast. He invites people into his home. Notice the alcohol references here. He gets everyone drunk. It's kind of a common thing with sin. And he gets Amon drunk, and once this happens, he sends all the men into the dining hall with all the brothers watching, and they slaughter this man for what he did to his sister. This could be an epic film, could it not? sin, sin, sin. Absalom knows that he's in trouble. He flees. David finds out what happened. He does drum roll, please. Nothing. No moral authority. He's the avoidant father. Absalom flees. David won't talk to him because he avoids him. David brings him back finally on house arrest. Still won't talk to him, Absalom gets mad, he wants his dad's attention, he burns stuff down, Absalom is hurt and angry, and he decides it's his time. It is his time, because he's a victim, it's his time to be king, and he's gonna take it by force. 2 Samuel 15, 10, Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, say Absalom is king. At Hebron, he had been sitting by the gate, building relationships as a judge for four years, he has relational capital, people want him to be king, it's his time, it's a sad takeover, And now 16 years after David's original sin with Bathsheba, he's still paying the price and facing the consequence, and David's world is absolutely upside down. His firstborn murdered by his favorite son, who's now trying to overthrow him and have him killed too. You can't make this up. It's so crazy, it's true. Verse 13, and a messenger came to David, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all the servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike down the city with the edge of the sword. They're saying, we're all going to die. So David does what he's done before. He runs. He runs into the wilderness. His son wins the battle, but not the war. They meet up again in the climactic ending in the forest of Ephraim. David and his men in this context, they know what it's like to fight in these environments, have the upper hand, and they win that battle and win the war. And here's the last verses that we're going to read. And the men of Israel, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7, and the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And so the environment was worse than the battle. And David knew how to fight in that context and so they win. The forest swallows up these men, 20,000 dead, Absalom dead, killed, David mourning the loss of now another son and another consequence of his immoral behavior in the past. Nine years later, David's an old man, he dies. But in all of this drama... In all of this drama, we learn some important things. That the foundation of our faith isn't an answered prayer or happily ever after endings, and that we don't wrap our confidence in God around the fulfillment of our happily ever after. Our dreams that don't come true say nothing about the presence and the faithfulness of the God that we serve. David's legacy will always be that he was a man after God's own heart, will always be that he was the best king that Israel ever had. His legacy will always be that at the end of the day, when he would write in his psalms and he would sing with his harp, it was always under the context of humility that he was broken before God when he was confronted with this sin, and he walked in this mentality from the time that he was 13 to the time in his 70s when he went on to be with the Lord. God, not my will, but yours be done in my life. So even his sin isn't his legacy. His legacy is that he follows God despite his sin, and here are the things that we're gonna end this thing on, and here's how we're gonna end this sermon series, and I want you to write them down sequentially. Number one, sin, when it comes to sin, always comes with pre-packaged consequences. It's Christmas time, right? We love our packages. There's always instructions on the box if it's something in the right nature, and so sin always comes with these pre-packaged ingredients and these pre-packaged consequences in our life. And you can be an atheist, and you have to concede that this reality is true, that certain behavior sets things in motion. And if you choose that road, there's going to be destruction. Just, for example, take sexual sin. You're married. You thought you were past all of that from your past. You start flirting with sexual temptation, building relationships with people that you shouldn't build relationships with. You fall to sexual sin. What happens? Well, it creates massive distrust in your marriage. It produces all sorts of hurt with your children who thought they knew who you were and you showed them something different like David tends to follow to the next generation. Premarital sex has much higher rates of breakups, just so you know if you're dating and you wanna make it last, one of the ways you can make it last is you can save yourself with that person and you can pursue purity and it has a greater chance of sustaining into actually becoming a marriage. That's what research tells us. Because sin comes with pre-packaged consequences. Unplanned pregnancy, financial consequences, emotional scars, you name it. Sin just has that reality in our lives, sexual sin. How about this? How about sin and parenting? What are the results when we sin in our parenting? When we look like David and we say, I've lost my platform. I'm going to not tell you what to do because I haven't done it myself. Results in kids that are apathetic family relational patterns where it's Christmas time and your adult kids come home and they're doing all sorts of things that you don't agree with but you've lost your platform to say anything about it and so you've taken the back seat and you've said things to yourself like well I'm just going to love unconditionally but what you're really saying is I don't even have a platform to speak against this and yes I need to love them but I don't even want to stand up for the truth because I've lost my own bearings in my spiritual life. Kids that are rebellious, kids that walk all over you, kids that are selfish, kids that lack affection for the gospel and the things of God. There are results, pre-packaged consequences of sin in our lives. It's true of David. 3,000 years later, it's true of us. How about the sin of pride? It blinds us, doesn't it? The sin of pride in our marriages and our families and our relationships stirs anger and resistment. It ext- extends to the external relationships, to the professional development, to lack of meaningful relationships in our life. We're too pride, proud to admit that we need to change, that we need to forgive, that we need to move on. These things have consequences. How about the sin of hypocrisy? It's, it's like David's story. You know, the worst thing about hypocrisy is it causes, like I said, it causes laryngitis. You can't say anything. What kid has ever followed a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do model in their life? Let me me just tell you who. Are you ready? None. Zero. They're looking to us specifically as the leaders of our home and our dad and our, and our, our fatherly relationships to show them what it looks like to serve Jesus authentically. All of these things, the domino effect gets put into place. Here's the second thing as we close out David. Sin fractures relationships, but here's what's critical. Here's what's painful. Here's what's David's story. Sin fractures relationships, but it tends to fracture relationships closest to the nest. Closest to home. These aren't relationships that are superficial and stand outside of us. It fractures in a very deep way those relationships that are closest to the nest. We had this annual pastor's meeting. Every time we go to Peru, and Peruvians love to talk, so we have to set aside. I I get impatient with meetings. I just kind of, here it is, let's go. But in Peru, you can't do that. It's offensive. You have to listen and listen and listen. So um, we had this long meeting, and we always have this meeting, Chuck and I, and and one of our elders, Larry, and the pastors, and, and one key leader in Peru. And what's going right, what's going wrong, what do we need to do? Every single person across the board, what's the biggest problem in ministry right now? Every single pastor, there's three, said the same thing right out of the gate. There are no men in our church. There are no men in our church. And I said, what do you mean there's no men in your church? Like, now, La Union was an example that was a little different, but the first two, I said, like, there's only a few men. They said, no, there's no men for leadership. The women are coming, single moms, they're coming to church. There, there's no dad around. It's just on and on and on it goes. And they just kind of looked at me and said, what do we need to do? We, we strategized a bit. We talked about raising up the next generation. We talked about certain outreaches. We talked about one-on-one building relationships. But at the end of the day, it's like, man, this is a cultural issue that makes America look like, you know, junior varsity. It's, it's a bad deal. It's happening here. It's on steroids there. And so I listened to the pastor from Lima talk about it. I listened to the pastor from Los Delfinos talk about it. Edwin and La Union said, well, I've had some luck. I I know that men don't want to get involved, so I've been taking them fishing. Men love to fish in Peru, and they love to eat fish. He said, but I take them to spots where I know there's no fish so that we can hang out longer. (laughs) And then we all have coffee when we're done, and we all have this bonding experience because we can talk about how we're all losers and we didn't catch anything. And uh, it's been effective. He said, another thing I do is I play soccer, football, because, uh, you know, this is, if you're like zero on the social totem pole in Peru... Here's how you get below zero. You don't play soccer. Okay, so he said, well, we play soccer together. We hang out. I build relationships one-on-one. I've had some success, but it's still very, very difficult. Sin fractures relationships closest to home. Now, as a result of that, we see all sorts of secondary issues. Mainly, we see young men coming through the pike that we're trying to raise up as leaders in the church, but they have these father wounds attached to them because sin fractures relationships closest to the home. We see young girls who are chasing boys that, you know, men, boys that can shave and and that really aren't going to do anything different than what their father did to their mother because the relational cycle has repeated itself. History has repeated itself. And the teenage pregnancy rate is through the roof. That's the purity conference every year that's going on right now today. Because sin fractures relationships closest to the home. Happened to David, happens to us. We have these purity conferences. What's the answer? Christ is the answer. Standing in the gap is the answer. Raising up men that are serving the Lord in the local church is the answer. Pastors that are putting their own lives on display saying, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. This is how I love my wife. This is how I love my kids. This is what I expect from you. We have our youth praise band that is so on fire for Jesus. It's a bunch of teenage boys, and they are really good in Peru. I mean, they just put us in the dust as far as at least our teenage praise band. They are good. And they're all serving the Lord, and three of them want to go to Bible school. The next generation is rising up, but we have these purity conferences, and I've told you this before, every time we have these purity conferences, people, as soon as they hear about purity, they just bawl. Because the majority of teenagers in Peru, in Iquitos, have been perped on. And so they break. I have this picture, maybe you saw it on social media. Anyone see that? Just was posted. Brent Klipfeld just praying with a young man who's broken. Purity Conference. We did a baby dedication the first night that I was at one of our campuses. You don't know how much I had to suck in to get that picture right. About three takes. (laughs) I don't know how old this girl is. I don't know her. I've seen her at church a few times. She goes there regularly now, I guess. First of all, how cute is the baby? That's like cute on steroids, right? This girl's definitely a teenager. She's being embraced by the church. Her story is not unique. It is par for the course. I don't don't know who the dad is. No one does. No one's met him. No one knows who the dad is. But he's not stepping up, and I bet you his dad did not step up either. And now the church is coming alongside her saying, well, we're all going to raise this kid together. Sin fractures relationships closest to home, but that's no excuse for the church not to be the church. If things are going to change, the church has to be the catalyst. Here's the last thing about David's life. All of this death, all of this destruction, all of this pain, but here's the last closing point for the five weeks we've been together. David's faith is bigger than his failure. I don't know if I'm quite here yet, but I'm starting to think about it because I like to overanalyze life. For me like the legacy stage is not present but for some reason I think about it all the time already I like to be ahead of the game. And and what I know some of you are in the stage is that the legacy stage is all about taking the baton of faith like in a in a race a 4 by 100 it's about taking that baton that Olympic baton and then passing it to the person that's behind you, and there has to be this smooth exchange. And when there's not a smooth exchange, the the baton gets dropped, and devastation uh, is is the result. And you get to this place in life where you don't want to drop that baton, where you want to see your sons, man. You want to see your sons do greater things for the kingdom than you did, amen? Like, Like you just start to have these desires in your heart. God, raise up this next generation in my own life to do greater things than I have done. Help my daughter to find someone who loves Jesus more than I do. I want to go on to be with you in all of my shortcomings and all my sins and all my failures but I want to be like David where I walk humbly with you and I don't want to be remembered for my failures. I want to be remembered for being a man of faith and because all have fallen short of the glory of God but Jesus, you have changed my heart. You have changed my life. You have changed my legacy. My dad was an alcoholic. My grandpa was an alcoholic. His His dad was an alcoholic but I don't drink at all. I can live a different life. I can be born again. I can be saved. I can be transformed by the power of the gospel. My story does not Have to be their story. That matters to me. Does it matter? I mean, amen, right? You want to have a different story. You pass that baton of faith, and David's faith was bigger than his failure. And I was sitting on a treadmill because I realized I have to when I got back from Peru. Three o'clock yesterday just trucking it before my kids' basketball games, going, this nothing changes if nothing changes, and I'm sitting on that treadmill, and I'm sure a million people have said this before me, but I thought it was original in my mind. I said, failure can either define us, or it can refine us. Someone should click a pin. My failure can do one of two things. It can define me, and my legacy, and the baton can drop, or it can refine me, as a means of waking me up to the need I have for Jesus to die for my sin and hang on that cross and rise from death and conquer it in my life. David was refined by his failure because he walked humbly with the Lord and he had a heart after God. And when he gets confronted with his shortcomings and his horrible, horrible things that he did, He breaks before God and he weeps. So then the only question as we walk into Christmas then becomes what about you, what about me? That's what David did, that's his story, that's his legacy, that's his baton passing. It's not without sin and it's not without pain, but it is with redemption. The story then becomes what about you? Have you taken all of this garbage in your own life and laid it at the feet of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I I have to have you take this from me. You're not a hope, you're not a way, you're the hope, the way, I have have nothing without you. And say I'm taking all these metaphorical poker chips in my life, I'm sliding them across the table and I'm telling you I'm all in, I'm all in. That right now, this Christmas, you can be that person who breaks the legacy in your family And you can give your life to Christ and follow him. You can pursue him passionately. And things can radically change. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would raise up this generation. Help us to look humble like David. Hopefully before it's too late and we don't do some of the things that he did. But if we have, we thank you that there is grace at the cross of Christ. And it's sufficient to cover all of our sins and give us this legacy. If there's anyone in this space or online or downtown that has never confessed you as Savior and repented of their sins, then Jesus, I pray right now they would cry out to you. They'd say, I'm a sinner, Jesus. I believe that you died on a cross. I believe that my good works can't get me to heaven. I believe that I should be punished for all of my sin. But I also believe that you died in my place for my sin, taking the wrath of God on that cross. I believe that you died, and then I believe that you rose again so that I can have new life in the here and now and for eternity. And so right now, in this moment, I surrender my life to you. Have your way in my life. Change my story. We pray this in your name, your precious name. Everybody said, amen.